0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. This fall, we are studying one of the most challenging and difficult to understand books of the whole Bible, Revelation. But what we will find as we study this book is that God is reframing our reality through what he teaches us in it. If you're in town and would like to join us in person, our services are at 8:30 and 10:30 on Sunday mornings at 3410 Granny White Pike, Nashville, Tennessee. Guys, uh, like I said, I'm so my name is Brent. I pastor our East Nashville Congregation, uh, and it's really fun to be here with you guys. Uh, this was my home congregation for over a decade. So, I started here in 2008 back at Rockettown as a college freshman, uh, and got to grow up in the Lord here and as a part of this community. And somewhere about five years ago, uh, you guys sent me away me and my wife and my baby girl and now there are three of those crazy kids filling up my home Uh, and we are over on the east side of Nashville and I will tell you at times it felt like you sent us overseas Uh, because uh, this community is our home and was our home for so long Uh, and as you know sometimes crossing the river feels like it's far away but it's not okay it's very close and uh, if you live over on that side of the river or around that side of the river, I know some of you have heard this before, like he's gonna do it again. I am, I'm gonna invite you, come on, come check it out. Come check out what is happening on our side of the river Uh, because God is moving over there like he's moving over here and it is a really sweet place to be on mission with Jesus. This morning I got to do a baptism of a family who uh, they live on the east side and they got invited to church by someone else from the east side. They've been at a church for a while, so they came and they showed up. And then they came to church, and then that week, they said that they saw someone at their grocery store and on the Greenway and at the Y, different people that they had been in church with together on Sunday. And so the next week, they came back. And then they came back, and then they came back, and then they came back. And I got to baptize their baby. That's one of the things I love about doing church over there is that we get to do it with the people that we're living around. And so if that's, if that's you, if you're over there, would invite you, come and check it out. And when you come, don't ask, is this as good as Granny White? Because I tell you, there are plenty of weeks I would rather be here listening to Gary than over on the east side listening to me. But that's not where God's <laughs> called me, okay? He's called me to the east side. Uh, and maybe he's calling you there too. So when you come, ask the question, is this where God's calling me to be on mission? And if he is then come on, cannonball in. No need to wait, okay? Just bring it. We're one church. And if not, then be on mission wherever God has put you. If you were here and you're like, that's great about East, what about here? Yes, here too. That you would be on mission wherever God has put you, including here. Because we believe, what we believe is that God is moving all across this city. That's why we're a church planning movement is because we wanna have outposts of the gospel all across this city, everywhere God is moving, which is everywhere, and what we believe, what we, we talk about this when we talk through the book of Acts is that it's not that God has a, a mission for his church, but that God has a church for his mission. That the reason that we exist as a people is because God is at work in the world and he has created us and brought us together so that we can be a part of it together. That's the call. Regardless of where you go to church, that's God's call on your life. And guys, that's not even the sermon, okay? That's just... <laughs> That is just extra this morning. Uh, yeah, so that's that. Okay, now we're going to get into the book of Revelation. So if you, uh, if you are here for the baptism, uh, spoiler alert, we're in the book of Revelation. And it's kind of crazy, okay? We, we will acknowledge that up front. We've been talking about it uh, all all semester. And here's what you got to know, though, is that Revelation is not as crazy as you think, because you are already very familiar with this genre of media. Like, did any of you listen to the hit podcast Serial when it came out? Oh, yeah. yeah, okay, Serial with an S, yes. Uh, that It's this kind of uh, investigative journalism. I don't know if you would call it true crime, but like kind of like that kind of podcast, right, where the goal is to tell you what is really going on or maybe you've recently listened to the podcast Sold a Story, anybody? It's thrilling, it's about uh, reading ed- education in the United States and why a lot of places don't use phonics to teach it, which you may be thinking sounds boring, but it's gripping. And it's gripping because it's done in that same investigative journalism style, you know, where they use like old grainy archival sound footage and, they, and, and the, the host poses poignant questions that they're wrestling with in their life, Right? and then does interviews, and they use those interviews. When you hear all of that put together, you recognize, oh, this is the genre of podcast where the the host is uncovering what's actually true. That's Revelation. Except John does it rather than through all of these kind of like strung together interviews and arguments. He does it through these incredibly arresting images. That Revelation is a book of images that God gave John these visions to capture our imagination in a way that a podcast can never do. And when we're captured by those images, when we're immersed in them, that God is waking up our our imaginations, he's grabbing our hearts, and then he's teaching us things that we're gonna grasp in our heads and live out in our lives in a way that can only happen through these kinds of images, these vivid images. That's revelation. Revelation. And because of the way that Revelation is structured, rather than teaching it sequentially, chapter by chapter, we're teaching it thematically. And you guys have been experiencing this, right? We've talked about, for example, the praise of Jesus. We spent two weeks doing that, talking about different throne room scenes. We've talked about the paradox of Jesus. When, uh, John, when the angel declares that there's one who's able to open the scroll, and it's the Lion of Judah, and John turns and he sees the Lamb who was slain. That's the paradox of Jesus. We've talked about that for a few weeks. And last week and this week, we're talking about the power of Jesus. And we're talking about the power of Jesus as it comes through judgment. It's a sobering passage. And I I just want you guys to know up front that as a pastor, what I'm often trying to do, in a sermon, it's like snorkeling, okay? And I'm like pointing out amazing things that we see in the text, right? And we got to kind of come up and get air. I guess you don't technically have to do that, but it helps in snorkeling. And then we kind of go back down and we look around. Um, this sermon is pretty heavy, and it may feel like scuba diving to you. That's okay. Parts of the Bible are like that. And what we believe is that God actually has something for us in the seriousness and the somberness of the text today. And that what he's drawing us toward is a worship and a way of knowing him and his work in the world and celebrating that work that can only be known when we walk through and hear about uh, some of the hard things that scripture has to teach us. So the way we're going to do that this morning, the way we're going to explore it, is through kind of two key images, two and a half, that we get in this passage, okay? The first image is this image of a great battle, We're going to immerse ourselves in this image of a great battle. And then we're going to immerse ourselves in this image of judgment. And then we're going to talk about what those images mean for us as we live in this time between two advents, as we live in the millennium. So I'm going to invite Christine Gilbert to come up. Christine is reading our passage for us. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Revelation 20. That's the text that we're going to be in. You can follow along in your Bible. You can grab a Bible out in the lobby because we'd love for you to have one if you don't have one. You can also follow along on the screen behind me. So, Christine, when you're ready, take it away. Great.
1: Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from the heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we trust that uh, your promises are good. And Lord, that you desire and your plan is to bring life to us and into our world by the preaching of your word. Uh, And so we trust that you will do that this morning. We pray that you would do it. And we pray these things in the precious and the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the first image that we're going to unpack this morning from our passage is this image of a great battle. And we see this great battle kind of play out in verses 7 through 10 of this passage. And this isn't the only place in the book of Revelation where this battle is pictured. It also shows up for us in Revelation 16, it shows up in Revelation 19, and it shows up in Revelation 20. And this battle, even though the name isn't used here in this passage, is the battle of Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Right? This battle that has taken on a kind of a mythic significance out in our world. That Even if you haven't been in church ever, you've heard that word. It comes from, uh, from, this, from this battle. A this battle is... It's the culmination. It's the pivotal battle. It's the final battle in a long-running war. And this war opened in the very first pages of Scripture all the way back in Genesis 3. This is what happened at the beginning of Genesis, is God created the world, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. And in this world, God, he he stocked it with with everything necessary, for the king and the queen that he created and appointed to to cause the world to flourish. He gave them all the raw materials they needed to develop potentiality in the world and to to bring it into the fullness that God had created for it. That was God's plan. And the enemy infiltrated that world. The enemy came in and he immediately started lying to Eve. Eve and what what he persuaded Eve and Adam to do was to rebel against God. And in their rebellion, the enemy and evil gained a foothold in the human heart. Gained a foothold into every human heart. And gained a foothold in the world. But at that moment, everything about God's beautiful creation was broken. It was marred by sin and evil. This a tragic moment, a moment that broke God's heart. And yet, God was not content to leave his world in that broken state, that God was not going to, to crumple it all up like a piece of paper and throw it away and start again. God said, no, I'm, I have a plan to redeem this creation, And God said, I'm going to make promises about my plan to do that. And we get those promises in Genesis 3, verse 15. This is God speaking to the serpent, to the enemy of God's people, to to the one who brought evil and introduced evil into this world. And what God says to him is, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But God's promise is that there is one coming from the line of Eve who will one day crush the head of the serpent. And so all throughout the scriptures, we see this ongoing battle. It develops this battle between the seed of the woman, the seed, and the serpent. And that battle characterizes all of the Old and New Testaments, Right? We see it with the calling of Abraham when God says, I'm gonna make a people for myself. It's through this people that my seed is going to come. And that seed becomes the nation of Israel. And that nation is enslaved in Egypt by a king who wore a crown. And what was on the top of Pharaoh's crown? A snake. Right? It's this picture of, of this battle between the seed and the serpent. And it plays out over and over and over again in the New Testament. And then we get to the New Testament and the seed comes. And the seed is... Jesus, yes. And here's what Jesus does. When Jesus arrives on the scene, before he begins his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness and you know who he does battle with? It's with the serpent, with Satan and with his lies. And Jesus overcomes the lies and in that moment, the strong man, this evil is bound. And yet, a few years later, that enemy thinks that he's won. In the moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he shouts, it's finished, the serpent thinks, I did it. And Jesus is put in a tomb. But that's not the end of the story. That three days later, Jesus rises from the dead and what he does is he, in that moment, he crushes the head of the serpent. Or at least he bruises it. Okay, are, are any of you World War II buffs? They know this about me in East Nashville, that I'm like a big history guy, Okay. If you know anything about World War II, you know that D-Day, the D-Day invasion, it was this monumental battle, and in that battle, once that battle was won, the outcome of the war was guaranteed. Yep. It was a foregone conclusion that Berlin would fall, that the Nazis would be defeated, and yet there were all of these battles that had to be fought between D-Day and the fall of Berlin. But at Jesus' resurrection, that was D-Day. That was the decisive battle against evil, and yet there were more battles that would play out, and those are the battles that we are living in. It's the war now between the people of the seed, the church, and the serpent. And that brings us to this final climactic battle between the two. There are these people being gathered for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And rather than looking forward to like a moment in history when this is gonna happen, it's an image that tells us about God's work. But we've gotta kind of soak ourselves in that image. So if you imagine yourself kind of bird's eye view, you see this city, this beloved city of God and the, the people of God are camped out inside and all around it. And against God's people comes this massive force of evil. And it's flowing up like, like a tide coming in all around the city. And this tide of evil is surrounding the city. It's a terrifying moment. Honestly, it reminds me of the end of Lord of the Rings. Have any of you seen the Lord of the Rings? If you haven't, I'll just tell you, Gary seems to like them too because I've already heard him use an illustration from the movie and he hasn't been here that long, okay? So do yourselves a favor and go and watch it because it's going to come up, okay? So at the end of The Lord of the Rings, what happens is there's this, there's, there's this group, the captains of the West, okay? And this is like the, the forces of good marshaled against the forces of evil. And they're at the very gates of Mordor, the very stronghold of the enemy. And yet their force is so small. And as they stand there, the enemy's forces pour out and totally surround them. And you know it's over. The battle's lost. It's going to be fierce, but it is hopeless. It's a similar picture. And then, hope beyond hope, Uh, the great enemy, the one who commands all those armies, is destroyed. And if you've read the books, you know, it's because, or the movies, you know, it's because the ring gets dropped in the fire. And if you don't know anything about that, that's okay. What you need to know, okay, is in that moment, Sauron, the great enemy of the people, the one who is driving all this evil, is cast out. He comes apart and is destroyed. And all of the forces that he has marshaled against what is good in the world, they all lose, they waver, they lose their will, and they run away. And this battle that seems hopeless becomes the, the battle that finally defeats evil. And that's what happens in Revelation 20, except in a way more anticlimactic way. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's it. Everything we see and read about the battle of Armageddon, oh, it—if it, 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 unless it's this picture, which is no battle, it's a misrepresentation of what takes place in Scripture because that's how powerful our Jesus is that there is nothing that can stand against him and that when someone tries, it's not a battle, Jesus just wins. That's what Revelation shows us. Oh, and friends, is that good news? Yes. Come on, that is good news because here's what Revelation will not let us forget. It will not let us forget that evil is real. It exists in this world, and let's acknowledge that as people who live here in 21st century United States of America and our air-conditioned life, we are always trying to deny that that's true, always, to minimize it, to shrink it down. We don't want to call it evil. The gospel that we preach to each other on the reg is that if everyone just had a little bit more therapy, everything would be fine, Right? Like if everybody got a little bit of therapy, then it would be okay. And guys, therapy is a great thing, but it doesn't solve evil in the world. And every now and again, evil punches into our world and it's unmasked. Because evil disguises itself. It's alluring, it draws us in. But then there are moments where the mask falls off and we see evil for the chaos and the destruction and the death that it is. And we hate it for what it is and we hate it like it should be hated. But that's what happened last week with these terrorist attacks in Israel. That evil punched through and we saw, this is not good. And some of you have experienced that in other places and in other moments of your life when evil punches through and you recognize this is not good. And Revelation says, that's true. Do not fall for the lie that evil doesn't exist. It's real and it's here and it's horrible and it's destructive. And then Revelation tells us, and God loves us so much that he promises us he has done something about it and he will win a final victory over it. That there will be a moment when hell is cast out of the earth, where it's done away with. Oh, and we long for that day, don't we? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But the judgment in Revelation isn't over when the enemy of God's people is cast out. There's another powerful image of separation that occurs here in this passage. And it's verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Friends, this is such a different picture than the other throne room scenes we have seen in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Every other time we have looked at the throne, it's been surrounded by all kinds of creation, right? All of these angels, these four living creatures who know what those are, and all of these people who are constantly making noise, who are shouting out hallelujah, who are praising God. And the scene is so beautiful, they're rainbows of living color? What? But not in this passage. This picture of the throne room is incredibly sobering. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Remember, these are images. And what this image is, is is showing us, what it's teaching us, is that all of creation uh, is aware of its brokenness and the ways it's been defiled by sin. And on judgment day, even heaven and earth fly away in front of God. And what what happens is God continues this process of getting the hell out of earth. This process of judgment and of separation, because that's what judgment is. It's a separation. Jesus talks about it all the time. Separating the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous it's a good thing we we want the hell to be gotten out of earth because Jesus is preparing the way for the new heavens and the new earth and the basis on which that's going to happen the basis on which the judgment's going to happen the separation is going to happen is based on these books that's the image that Revelation gives us is these books that are brought in and are laid out before God you want to know what's in the books? you'll have a book and I'll have a book And the point is not whether God's going to open a physical book, but it's to communicate to us that we are going to be judged based on everything we have ever done. Like every text you have ever sent will be in the book. Every email that you've ever written and then deleted, it'll be in the book. (laughs) Everything you've ever posted on your Facebook that you have now gone back and scrubbed because it is embarrassing or inappropriate or offensive, it'll be in the book. Every thought that you have ever thought will be in the book. Every careless word that you have thought and then left unsaid will be there and every word that you have cared a lot about and said and that has brought death and destruction into the lives of other people all of those words will, all of those words will be there. Everything you have ever done and everything you have ever left undone that you knew you were called to it will all be there. And when we're standing before God in that moment, it'll be great and small. There's no one whose privilege is gonna let them out of that moment. And there's no one who is so small that their life will be overlooked by God. There's dignity in that, that every single life matters and is seen by God. And when those books are open, it's gonna be silent. And I think it's gonna be silent because of the Shame. Like, if you had that book of your life right now, would you give it to someone else in here to read it? No. It's because we know what's in him, the, sh- the shame of, of who we are and what we've done. And so there's a separation, there's a getting the hell out of earth. And the reality of this passage is that if we are to be judged based on what we've done, that uh, there's hell in our own hearts. That evil and hatred, destruction and death has come out of us against other people who are made in God's image. That we have sown those things out into the world and that if God has got to deal with hell, if God has got to deal with hell, he's got to deal with us, he's got to move us out of the earth and put us in a place where we would experience God's wrath for sin because a God who is a loving God cannot not deal with evil. We like to ask, how can a loving God create something like hell? And instead we've got to ask, how can a loving God not do something about evil? And make no mistake, God is not uh, sending people there somehow against their will in the sense that when he is reading these books, all he's doing is declaring and confirming what is true and confirming the choices that we have made to reject God all throughout our lives. That's a terrifying prospect. And one that in emotionally we recoil from, right? That we are a people who are used to being led by our beliefs. <laughs> you guys have heard us talk about beliefs here, I think, before. That what I feel is true should be true. Oh, guys. That's our lives, isn't it? I don't like that truth, so it's probably not true. That's ridiculous. How I feel about whether or not something is true has no power to make it true or not true, but suddenly when we enter the realm of God, we believe that we can operate toward God that way. No, the scriptures will not let us do this. And friends, you have got to know their guides who will stand up and say, hey, if this makes you uncomfortable, just let me show you all the ways you don't have to believe in it. And I'm just gonna tell you, they're not being honest with you. that all of the kind of fancy footwork you can do, there's no way to get out of the fact that judgment is a part of the fabric of the Old Testament and New Testament narrative, both. A lot of Old Testament, New Testament, God, it's just a God thing. And how could it be any other way? Because what we know about our God is that our God loves his creation and he has to deal with evil, so he has to deal with us who are evil, That's not shocking to us if we're honest with ourselves. <laughs> and we testify to the reality and the importance of judgment every time we judge each other, and that's a lot, isn't it? We testify to the fact that we know that judgment is true and that judgment is coming, and we actually think that we are we have enough information to be the judge. And what Jesus says is no judgment is good and judgment is coming, but you don't know. You're biased. We've got an impartial judge who can see all the things. No, what, guys, this is the thing you've got to wrap your mind around. It's not that it's so strange that God would judge. We know that. People have believed that for millennia. What is strange is that our God is also a God of grace. That God came to deal with hell not by just saying, cover your eyes, cover your, not like those monkeys, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Not like that. God actually dealt with hell but he created a way to bring his people out of it that is what should shock us if you, if you have not been shocked and scandalized by the grace that you see in the person and work of Jesus then you have not wrestled with grace friends because it is offensive We see it in all the interactions Jesus has that when he shows grace, that's where he gets the greatest pushback and we like to believe that that would not be true about us we would not do that. We love grace. But whenever someone comes to you and asks for it, okay, tell me now you know how hard grace is. That is the beauty of the gospel that God has created this thing that we in our own hearts and minds could never imagine or make up which is that there's another book. A book of life. And that book also testifies to a life. It testifies to a life that's perfect. A life that was never marred or marked by disobedience. It records a life that was perfectly submitted to the will of God, but not only did everything that he was called to do, but the life of someone who, uh, who said yes to all of the things that God called him to. Unless you think that's like a life of polite manners, you know, polite Green Hills manners. No, this was a life that was full of what it meant to be a person, that was full of joy, that was full of laughter, that was full of an overflowing love that poured out on the people around him. A life that because the love was so great, overflowed in anger and was willing to suffer. A, A life that was the most human life that had ever been lived. And that person said, I love so much, I am willing to die for the sake of my friends. And that's you. And that's a me. And we're talking about Jesus. And in that book of his life, that's on, that we see on judgment, this book of life, um, there's a dedication page. Okay? And if your name is there on the dedication page, what it means is that when your book is opened up, his book is put on top of it. And instead of reading the record of your deeds, what God is going to see is the record of Jesus' deeds. Oh, praise God. And so the question before us is not, will we stand in the presence of God? The question before us is, on whose record will we stand when we are in the presence of God? Will we say, God, please read my record? Or will we say, God, please read his record? And the the answer that we give to that question is the the, the answer we will give then is the answer we give now. Oh, and so the invitation is to come. To come to him, to experience that love. Where you say, Jesus, my record is not good enough. I want yours. That's called repentance. And even today, that's the call. And listen, I'm not gonna do an altar call. We're not gonna like raise hands, lock the doors. But here's what you need to know, okay? Um, there's no high-pressure cell here, but what you do need to know is that it's urgent. There is an urgency to trusting this Jesus. Oh and friends the life on the other side of that is a life of hope a life of confidence knowing that our Jesus is coming back and he's going to defeat evil and he's going to get it the hell out of earth and then on that day when we stand before him we can know now that we will stand before him in confidence All oh, that's available to us now and that changes the way that we get to live now in this thing that Revelation calls the millennium. Now, if you've been in church a long time, a lot of ideas about this, premillennial postmillennial, post-millennial, blah, blah, blah. We could talk a lot about it. We're not going to. Here's what I'm gonna tell you, okay? What you need to know is that right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he is reigning over this earth. He is king. That's true. We see it in this passage. We see it in lots of places of scripture. Jesus is king even now. And our Jesus, who is king, he has bound the enemy that our enemy does not have unlimited power in this earth. There is a limit. And here's how we know there's a limit, is that all over this earth, there are people worshiping Jesus today. In countries where it is illegal, there are people worshiping Jesus today. In countries where Satan is trying so hard to stamp out the church, to make it not exist, the church exists. And there are people worshiping Jesus and that church is growing all over the world. And that is evidence that the enemy has had boundaries put around him and that as much as he hates the work of grace in this world, he cannot stop it. He cannot stop it. Which means that we get to go out into this world as a people of worship and a people of witness, full of a hope and confidence and faith in what our Jesus is doing. A people of of worship, it means, that's like when we do this on Sunday mornings, we are pushing back against the kingdom of darkness. You know that? When you gather in each other's living rooms across the city and you open up this this scripture together, that's what you're doing. And what we are declaring when we worship God is that the story of Jesus is the most powerful story and it is the story of our lives, of my life and of your life. But your anxiety and your depression are not the strongest story in your life that there is a story that is stronger than that. It doesn't make that other stuff not real, but there's a story that's better and a story that's stronger and a story that's truer than that. But there is a story that is stronger than your sin. And those of you who are sitting here this morning and you think, this is great, but my sin is too great for Jesus. It's not true. There is no sin that is too great for him. His story is your story. It's a greater story. There is no sin. There is no suffering. There is no evil in your story that can overcome his story. And when we gather together as a people of worship, we're declaring and reminding each other that that is true. And you know uh, that you can actually do that whole worshiping thing outside of church-sponsored activities. <laughs> it's shocking to hear. I know, okay? But one of the ways that it seeps its way into all the, like, crevices of our lives is when we worship and testify to the work of Jesus to each other in our day-to-day interactions. Like on Friday night, we had some friends over at our house for dinner. And the question that we've been asking on Friday nights is, uh, where have you seen God in your life this last week? I know you're all like, yeah, the pastor would ask that question, huh? (laughs) I will tell you, even as the pastor, sometimes it's hard for me to ask. I kind of like choke it out, because I'm afraid that that's what you're going to say. But here's the thing, is that it's not like a pastor question. It's just a Christian question. What is Jesus doing in your life? Tell me about it, because I need to hear it. We need to hear it from each other. We need to hear ourselves speak about what we see God doing, and we need to be encouraged by hearing what God is doing in the lives of our friends and our brothers and our sisters. Don't we? Come on, that's worship and that's witness. It's talking about it's telling the truth about Jesus and what he's doing in our lives even now. Friends, and as we do that with each other, we are flexing muscles that we get to exercise out in the world. Out in a world where we are telling the truth about Jesus. That's what witness is. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 28, "You will be my witnesses." You're out there, we're out there telling the truth telling the truth in how we live, how we act, how we embody the paradox of Jesus, and in our willingness to speak words that are in harmony with the truth of Jesus, about what he is doing in our lives, what he has done for us, the hope and the confidence and the faith that we have in him. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna worship our socks off, okay? <laughs> God, thank you. Uh, thank you for your word. Lord, and as as hard of a word as that is to hear, Jesus, it is such a good word that you are not okay with evil, Jesus, that you have not made peace with evil like we so often make peace with evil. Thank you. Thank you that you love us and you love your creation too much to make a false peace like that. Oh, Jesus, please come and come quickly. And Lord, for those of us who when we think about that day of judgment are are still terrified, who, who feel this wavering, this questioning of, ah, Of Is that true about me? Jesus, would you, even in this time, uh, would you strengthen us through repentance, Lord, not through insisting on our own record, but by looking to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Would you enliven our, our worship this morning with that kind of healing power? And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.